Hey, y'all. Welcome to Mace Way. Glad you're here. Um, we've um, had a trouble getting folks here at 5 o'clock, so I'm not sure if it's the heat or the Song of Solomon that's brought you out this evening. It's, it's uh, an interesting thing. We'll have to do a poll later, but glad you guys made it. And um, So grab something to drink if you haven't. And uh, There's some cookies over there that are double dark chocolate uh, chip that um, I have to admit I've checked for poison and uh, there was none. So you might want to try that out. Um, We're going to start with our call together tonight, which is a song uh, by a band called The Call, and a songwriter named Michael Ben um, passed away a few years ago, but uh, uh, had a beautiful voice, and uh, this is sort of a hymn off of their most popular record, and um, so the hymn is really this song uh, talking about God's love for us, and I think one of the things that we certainly read in the Song of Solomon is uh, that uh, we read it uh, oftentimes as an allegory, uh, that it's it's a story of not only our love for each other, but of God's great love for us. And so in this language, which we'll see in a couple of the songs tonight, that there's this idea of God seducing us, this, God, this idea that God loves us uh, very much as a lover, and that His love is something that surrounds us and that uh, draws us to Him. So I'll do this uh, a couple times uh, with Dale, and uh, we'll um, hopefully have you guys join in as you get the feel of the melody. So it goes, You surround me covered You seduce my soul All my fears uncovered As my life unfolds In the warmth of your You awake my senses I was torn in doubt Losing all defenses When you called me out I returned to the heart of a love eternal waiting there for me. So let's try it from the beginning again. You surround me covered. You seduce my soul. All my fears uncovered. As my life unfolds in the warmth of your arms, you awake my senses. Well, I was torn in Losing all defenses when you call. 
return to the heart of a love eternal waiting there for me. Hey everyone, welcome to Emmaus Way. I am Amy. And I am one of our pastors here. Um, it's Gosh, it's so hot. <laughs> I was back with the kids for a few minutes, and they don't have air back there. So if you feel warm out here, just think of our lovely nursery volunteers and workers back there and, and the children that they have to chase around um, and maybe bring them some ice water at some point. Um, if it's your first time with us or maybe your first time in a long time, Welcome, we are so glad to have you, and of course our um, regular folks, we're so glad to see you again. Um, Emmaus Way is a community that seeks to find Jesus and be a part of uh, God's redemptive story here in Durham and in the surrounding areas. And we do that by gathering on Sunday nights and worshiping together, and also by meeting throughout the week um, in homes. Um, we meet at the pub on Thursday nights to talk about theology and politics and the like, and that is... Um, run by our Mr. Dan Rhodes over here. If you're interested in contacting uh, or in getting involved in that, you can contact him. If you're interested in plugging into one of those home groups that I mentioned, you can contact Elizabeth Eford over here, um, and their emails are on the back of your worship folder, our worship uh, paper. Tonight we're going to be talking about um, Song of Songs, and Tim and uh, Travis and I gladly gave Dan Rhodes this uh, <laughs> passage, so... He's going to bestow some wisdom on us, and we're going to use some art, continue our art series on and look at a, a picture that you probably picked up on your way in. Um, as far as coming up events here at Emmaus Way, um, we are actually in the process of hiring a new um, nursery worker, um, children's worker, excuse me, for our K-5 through position. Um, our lovely Tara Gibbs has resigned and will be uh, leaving us at the end of July to... She's an uh, MDiv student at Shaw University, and so she has several, many, actually, um, obligations this coming year, and so something had to go, and unfortunately, that was us, but we have loved having her here, and um, I already told her that she's going to be on my babysitting rotation, so hopefully we'll see her face around here, um, but the nursery, or the children's team is in the process of interviewing some great candidates, and we're excited for a new person to come in that position. Um, coming up in the next couple weeks, we are going to have a soul care work, workshop on July 28th. And I mentioned this about a month ago, um, and many of, I've been in email contact with many of you. This is um, going to be offered by a woman called Stacy Hayes, and she is um, an old friend of Tim's through Chapel Hill Bible Church and does soul care through the arts. And so she's going to be offering a workshop um, on specifically life transitions. And we're gonna be holding that, fingers crossed, here at the Reality Center um, on July 28th from about nine to noon. So if you haven't um, contacted me and you're interested, please do so. There's no cost uh, to the participants. We'll be paying Stacy um, through Emmaus Way, but we're really excited to kind of do a different thing um, through the arts. So. Um, speaking of the arts, several weeks ago, we also had Tracy Radosevic do a uh, storytelling here, and several of you have asked 
um, about Tracy for her contact info. And I know Wade has her info, and as do I. So if any of you are interested, um, we'd love to get you in contact with her and look on her website, see the things that she does. Um, when she was here, uh, Tracy mentioned to me the next day, because we were at the same youth camp, she said, Amy, Maysway is amazing. How do you pay the bills? There was no offertory. And I said, well, as we normally do, we fail to mention that if you are interested in giving to Emmaus Way, we have our uh, silver bowl out here in the front, and you can also find a PayPal button on our website. Um, and of course, we also accept um, checks through the mail from your bank or anything like that. So all that to say, we are ecstatic to have you here tonight. Look forward to gathering and worship together. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for remembering that. Since we get paid occasionally. So we're going to do a couple songs of preparation, uh, as we oftentimes do for uh, conversation. And um, these songs are both written by female songwriters. And um, so we, we're, part of it was we wanted to balance out the number of white males that you'll be hearing from this evening. That wasn't exactly how we wanted to plan it. But as, as Amy said, you know, she was glad to hand it off to Dan. And uh, so anyway, this song, uh, One Big Love, is one that we did on our uh, First Right 7 project. And um, it's a song that's kind of a whimsical song about connection and uh, about friends and about uh, love. And so um, it's also about God's love being sort of a one big all-encompassing love. And then the next song is um, a song by Sean Colden called uh, Set the Prairie on Fire, which is more of a song using uh, kind of a baptism imagery, both of water and fire for sexual imagery and for uh, kind of more erotic um, sort of uh, storytelling. And uh, like I said, with the baptism Im imagery, you know, we, we oftentimes think of baptism in the Christian church as being something that you do to declare that your, your belief in Christ. But, you know, um, Jesus was baptized and he wasn't declaring belief in himself. He was actually saying that, you know, he joined the people of God. And so in certain ways, this imagery is really meant to uh, play on that idea of joining each other in this baptism of, of water and fire. So um, with uh, these, if you want to join in and sing, that would be great. And then if you also want to listen and just prepare for the conversation, then do that. But this is One Big Love. Let's take a ride to the seaside. Go out swimming in the high tide. We shorten your long hair. Don't forget the long chair Everybody's gone to the movies Everybody's gone and it's groovy It went to the one about the big war I'd seen it before Well, I guess I'm taking my chances Giving up my ring, throwing in my glove Yeah, I I'm taking my chances Changing my things for a couple of wings A little white dove And one big love One big love One big love Everybody do like a monkey Wanna go on, be funky No need to talk like a hero Take a walk, count down to zero
No sense defending your honor Just go on and kiss him if you wanna Everything before is gone Going somewhere, yeah I'm taking my chances Giving up my ring Throwing in my glove Yeah, well I guess I'm taking my chances Trading in my things For a couple of wings On a little white dove One big love One big love One big love One big love We can go out swimming in the high tide And big love Everybody's gone to the movies Everybody's gone and it's groovy One big love Everybody go on like a monkey If you wanna go on be funky Talk like a hero, take a walk and count down to zero. One big love, yeah, one big love. No sense defending your honor. Just go on and kiss them if you wanna. One big love, one big love. One big love, one big love. One big love. Denise and I were talking a little bit about uh, tonight's conversation, too, this week, and uh, we were talking about how um, part of the uh, conversation that doesn't get mentioned a lot by men is that um, the statistics are somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of women have their first sexual experience as an unwanted experience. In other words, that's not really where they want to be or how they want to be dealt with, and so... Um, part of our conversation tonight is uh, certainly in terms of sensitivity to the idea that um, we do uh, have a lot of complex feelings. There's been a lot of damage with related uh, to um, eros or romantic love. But at the same time, at the church level, we've oftentimes just not described romantic love at all because we've kind of said there's this agape love of God and everything else is sort of left to people's imagination and maybe occasionally at a wedding or something. So hopefully uh, this song, as I mentioned, has a, a lot of baptism imagery to go along with the imagery of the Song of Songs. So uh, you're certainly free to uh, sing along, but if you just like to listen and think about the lyric, then you can do that. Thank you. 
warm moon and that same sad nature Wanna cover every inch of you like ink on a paper Like the blind parade of souls consumed by religion Can't wait till I get you in that defenseless position Prairie on fire. We go down to the water, naked and slow. You and me are in the heart of desire. We set the prairie on fire. How hard we. The velocity of lungs melting into each other It's a song our fingers play at all at once And together you can bet we never learned it But we've known it forever Oh, I dreamed that we were flying Carried up from the ashes Black silhouettes of velvet against the crimson of fashion We can almost hear the echoes from the smoldering bell It's the rapture of the angels and the rage of the devil When we set the prairie on Through the rusted wires of sleep With our arms around midnight We're headed for release Go riding in the wind Riding in the dark Riding, riding, riding Heart of desire 
Eyes of the prairie on fire How hard will the wind blow Oh, how far will it go thinking as you were playing that way, wow, I'm really glad we canceled the liturgical dance. <laughs> that song. I, I had ordered the outfit and you just said no. So. Um, no, I hope, you, I hope as you were listening to that, I, I know you might not have caught everything, but a lot of those images will pop up throughout the Song of Solomon. So there, that, that song that uh, Wade and uh, Dale just played, uh, the recurring images that go through that are, gonna, are, are things that will pop up continually through the Song of Solomon. Even if we don't get around to talking about all of them tonight, I think as you reflect on it throughout the week, you'll find uh, that there are a lot of connections between that song and uh, the Song of Solomon itself. So, um, as Amy mentioned, we're kind of going through a series right now where we're looking at poetic books, uh, poetic books of the Bible, and, and throughout that, a lot of those have been in the Old Testament, and we're kind of... Uh, working our way through largely the wisdom tradition, this uh, tradition of the Old Testament that includes books like Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs. Um, what did you do last week? I was out of town. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. So that was a little bit of a throw-off, but there's some poetic moments in Ezekiel that we, we played off of last week. And as the cards fell, uh, it turned out this week that Song of Solomon landed um, for me. This is going to be a really hard night for me to avoid. I've, I've realized this. Any of the major slip-ups that I'm going to say. So I have two things for you to do, as is our custom here. We're going to pass the peace of Christ, say hi to the people around us, get a snack if you want to. And at this time, too, I want you to go ahead and get all of your silliness out. Get all the, that's what she said out, you know, while you're, at the, while you're getting a drink. Because chances are, I'm going to say something that has a lot of innuendo in it tonight, and we'll all laugh. But that'll be fine. It's part of the Song of Psalms. I'll say um, strapless breast. <laughs> yeah. Because that was that's an earlier Emmaus yeah. Way night. That's a classic. I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> that's a classic slip-up that I Just get that out earlier. of the way, yeah. So Check anyway, stand podcast. up, greet those around you, pass the peace of Christ, and I'll invite us back in just a minute. So, uh, the scriptures that I've selected for us to read through tonight really don't have a lot of rhyme or reason to them. Um, the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, depending on however you want to refer to it, um, is really just one long love poem or a collection of love poems. Uh, people kind of don't really know exactly where the nice breaks are in it. It's something that uh, scholars argue about. Um, so I kind of tried to break it up to give it a couple different voices. So as we're reading tonight, I think Amy has bravely uh, been volunteered, I'll say it that way, <laughs> to read our passage for us tonight. But you'll notice that the first section uh, reads in the voice of a female, of the poet, the second section reads in the voice of a male, possibly. And then the third is kind of a chorus, uh, maybe coming back to the, the first speaker's voice. 
All right, so that just gives you some idea. These are snapshots out of the poem. We really could have selected about any of them, uh, any of the, the pieces or any of the verses of the poem, but this is kind of what I selected for us. So, Amy, would you read? Yeah, if you want to come up, that's fine. We want to hear every word. That's right. I was going to say, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot. I'm Song of Songs 2, 16 through 3, 5, 4, 1 through 10, and 8, 6, and 7. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The sentinels found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the wild does, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. How beautiful you are, my love, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil, your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like the halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Depart from the peak, come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinar and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks, Amy. So every once in a while, or pretty regularly, I guess, when my family gets together, we... uh, well, a lot of times, you know, if it's like a time for a holiday or whatever, and my brother and my sister-in-law are in town and my parents are around, we'll, we'll watch a movie. That's one of the things that we'll do at my parents' house. We'll order a movie on TV and we'll watch it. 
um, together. And, you know, this is not something that's really all that odd. I think this is pretty common for families, at least across the U.S. A lot of people will watch movies together, which makes me think that a lot of you have also experienced that very awkward moment. It's that that thing that happens about midway through the movie when the steamy love scene comes on, the clothes come off, and you are in the very odd situation of watching two people have sex on TV with your parents five feet away. <laughs> you know, it's that awkward sense of, I don't want to look too closely because then you seem like you're kind of, well, that's kind of odd. That's a little perverted. You don't want to gaze away because then you act like everybody thinks you're, you're six years old, or not six years old, uh, in sixth grade again. Right? You don't want to stare, you don't know where to look. You don't know whether to look at people around you. I find myself during that time kind of just holding my breath. You know, not wanting to breathe, not wanting to move, just kind of sitting there. And it's like, those scenes take forever. Right? And every single noise, grunt, groan, everything during that time is just over the top. Right? And you're sitting there feeling like, I cannot wait for this to end. To some extent, the Song of Songs is kind of that awkward moment in the larger movie, right? It's that steamy love scene that pops up in the middle of the narrative of the Old Testament where we're kind of feeling like it's a little bit awkward for us. And to be honest, it does seem, even for me, it seems a little bit like a misfit, right? I mean, we've been talking about the wisdom tradition. We've been talking about kind of books like Ecclesiastes and Job and Proverbs and all these things, and it seems to me that at least Song of Songs doesn't, what is it doing here? It doesn't really fit neatly within this. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, aren't wisdom and love usually two things like water and oil? They don't mix very well, right? I mean, wisdom and love do not typically go together. Think of all the great romantic songs that proclaim this to us, right? Something like, I don't know, the Eagles, right? That, that sense of love will keep us alive, or love will be the one that will kind of, when we're hungry, what's going to happen? It just got played over and over through the 90s at every wedding, right? The sense that love, even if the fridge is bare for about three days, is going to keep us alive. Turns out, not really, right? Not exactly. Or think of, you know, if those of you that are country fans, Trisha Yearwood's, uh, she's in love with the boy, you know, where Katie and her boyfriend Tommy run away from the wise parents who are like, you're not, it's never going to work, and they have to run away so that their love can survive, so that it can thrive, right? That sense of two foolish lovers who have to run away from the domineering parents who are wise and smart and who say the world just doesn't work that way. I mean, that's the way we like our love, right? We like our love to contradict or to kind of confront our wisdom. So this is the first question I want us to ask tonight. It's a question of kind of genre, or a question of how does the book of Song of Songs, and kind of just listening to what we just read, if you've never engaged it before, fit or kind of connect to wisdom? How would it, how, what's it doing here? I think maybe just to sort of bounce off of what you were just saying, I think oftentimes in those type of narratives that you're describing, love is equated with naivete, 
Mm -hmm. um, that's why it's so important in like Romeo and Juliet, they're both 14 or 15. And I know several of us have just seen Moonrise Kingdom by Wes Anderson, which is the same sort of a story with two 12-year-olds who fall in love and do all these really impractical things to be together. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that here, especially at the, at the end of uh, the section that we've read, the section from, uh, from chapter 8, we have love as almost a sort of superior rationality that somehow wins out at the end. Mm. That it, it supersedes wisdom in some way that, that, that seems more powerful than wisdom itself. Yeah, so maybe like, you guys are growing old and cynical, we've been talking about wisdom books for a long time, you know, and this is that kind of young radical utopianism. Oh, we can win the day if we just fight harder, you know, it will happen, the revolution will come, or I don't know, something like that, you know, so maybe a kind of different voice within the wisdom tradition. I've read a lot of Latin and a little bit of Greek poetry, and pretty much all of that is quite different to this because it's pretty much all a chat-up line. Mm. Pretty much always a male protagonist trying to persuade a female protagonist that she's so good-looking and therefore she should speak with it. I'm not sure where the logic comes in, but that's why there's so much of it. Because you've got to try different angles, I guess. Um, and it's all pretty different to this. And so, so from my perspective, I think this, this in a way is, this is a wise or healthy view of a sexual relationship, of a romantic relationship as compared to Ovid, say, or Catalus, or any of those people which are pretty much about pursuits um, and conquest and these kinds of things. And what really strikes me is that this, and, and which maybe just escapes us, but for the ancient world, it's absolutely radical. There's, there are these voices. There's this female voice. She's got her own voice. She's talking about her own sexuality. Amazing, her own design. And that's, that's made it a dangerous document. Right? This, this has been reinterpreted to be mystical Lots of times. No, this is just Christ in the church. This is just the soul of God. Can't ever be possibly be real human beings. Why? Because this woman has got so much sort of power, and um, her role in this is, you know, she's got, she's got, got her own voice. It's just an amazing thing, and utterly unlike any of that other ancient poetry I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there might be other stuff out there. So, to me, what's interesting is that that suggests that. This sort of a wise way of view of, of a romantic sexuality involves this this dialogue. These, these lovers talking to each other with their own voices, as opposed to these sort of other ancient versions where one of the people never had a she was she was always just pretty much an Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which you know we we you know we we read some smatterings of the poem itself, but I think. Uh, a few points from that is that the poem doesn't read as one that was basically copied down in a club in the you know the first century, right? So somebody overheard a conversation in a club and it was kind of a, pick, a, a really great pickup line, a long one, but a really great pickup line. Uh, it doesn't read that way. And in some sense, one of the major turns that's very interesting about the Song of Songs is that it is written primarily from a female voice, right? From a female voice that talks about an ideal notion of love or an ideal sense of what love looks like and what human contact looks like. So I think the both of those are really, really important and play a, 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 a really strong role in how we should read the Song of Songs. Others? Jim? I'm going to take two here. One, one is that I find that it changes voices in here. So mm-hmm. it is sometimes a woman, sometimes a man. They don't mm-hmm. give you any clues until mm-hmm. it happens. Mm-hmm. And so I just find that kind of 
interesting. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then regarding the connection between love and wisdom, Gail has a, a really good, very practical definition of wisdom, which is making good decisions. <laughs> and, um, um, and I find this poem talking about the power of romantic love. <clears throat> And it says in, in verse 5, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's, and that's a real wise statement that you, know, you can be overpowered by these emotions and be careful with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a sense of like yearning within the poem itself and, and kind of not knowing exactly what to do with that per se. Yeah, Susan. It's kind of a simple thought, but um, I think I've studied a lot and I think wisdom is wise until it loses love, and so I just think of like love and wisdom are two sides of the same thing. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, you know, I think from a personal story, me looking back kind of at the lives of those who have gone before me, so primarily my parents, you know, the things that... Uh, I'm very, very happy for a lot of the wise decisions that they made. You know, they make these, you know, good decisions that really make sense. There's a good calculation to them. But I think also there's some sense in what I really, really respect about their lives are the times when they made actually kind of quasi very foolish decisions, but foolish decisions out of relational dynamics that called for something else. Right? Where, where that type of calculus, the wise thing, what would have paid off economically or what would have been a good job decision, what would have been a good, sometimes even a great family decision, right, was traded for a sense of our call is to love here and that might resist wisdom to some extent. So I think we got both sides here, a kind of a more holistic sense if we're looking at the wisdom tradition together, a rounding out of the wisdom tradition, maybe. Or, or as uh, one of your mentors would say, uh, whose wisdom? Right. Yeah. Are we talking about God's wisdom? Are we talking about financial wisdom? And, and uh, there are different wisdoms that can compete with each other. And so when love is brought to bear, it can actually guide us to one rather than another. Exactly. And, and what's interesting, if you were to take the larger sections of the Song of Solomon and read them, the imagery, the, the poet, uh, this woman poet, is deeply, deeply ingrained in the narratives and the, the, the structure of the Old Testament. Like the, the scenes of garden come up, and so the kind of being trained within a wisdom of the Old Testament is deeply a part of the writer of the Song of Songs, um, or at least the kind of main poet, it seems. Well, I was just thinking about how the wisdom and um, love thing in some ways work here because the um, people that are very passionate can also be very passionate about what they're studying or what they're, you know, um, wanting to be wise. And in other words, I don't think they're exclusive. And I think in the language you see a lot of images of, you know, a desire and passion for that person and then, you know, for beauty. And I think that, um, you know, Einstein was known to not know where his own house was because he was just so passionate for what he's thinking about. He couldn't remember how to get home. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is sort of a, a lossness that can be a good thing when you're focusing on something that you want. But in terms of the images, um, they're also a little odd to us. I mean, these images of, you know, uh, goats and other things, you know, sheep. And um, Josh Busman showed us a really funny picture where someone had actually drawn a picture that was literal. So it was like you know, sheep all over someone's face and all this kind of stuff. And the caption said something like, "Who's who's in seventh grade, by the way?" Looking person, but Solomon loved her. You know? <laughs>
Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I mean, the imagery here obviously comes from a different time and a different age. It's very bucolic or agricultural in some sense. But, you know, it still kind of rings true, I think, to, in some ways, the kind of the passion and the dedication of the poet or the, the even whichever voice you're writing from or talking from to the, the lover. Okay, so we've been tiptoeing just a little bit. Go ahead. Um, not in active practice now, but back when I did marriage counseling, uh, when people had problems, uh, particularly, usually they don't come see a marriage counselor at the drop of a hat, you know, it's usually been some time and they, they've tried things until they decided that the other person is impossible mm -hmm. and um, that they know the other person completely and that he or she is never going to change. Um, and then they come in for counseling and confront me with this. And if I had seen uh, each of them separately, I frequently would not know that they were talking about the same marriage. Mm -hmm. But often they think, well, I don't love him anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and this is some of the kind of thing that they're talking about. Um, because when you get hurt or frustrated enough, um, this tends to evaporate. Um, so there, there's something, you may have already mentioned it before I came in, but there's something about a different kind of love that helps um, sustain um, commitment and underlies commitment and actually can enable this then to have more ground to flourish because your relationship doesn't get withered the first time that the joy and fun of this. Right. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that we're going to see within the poem, right? So the poem is continually throughout the church tradition, throughout uh, the, the life of Israel, was read on two levels. One was on a very sensual. I mean, it's very, you know, we're talking about innuendo. There are innuendos all throughout of it. There are sensual scenes. There are sexy scenes. There are kind of, uh, ra you know, really racy scenes in some, in some parts of it. Uh, but then the church has also read it uh, on a kind of allegorical level, a more spiritual level, where the, where the, the narrative itself stands as a description of the relationship between God's love for God's people. Right? Um, and so kind of what we're going to do a little bit tonight is to try to find that both of those have to be connected to one another. It's not that one operates over and against the other, but that our real desires, our real sensuality, our real kind of erotic nature is also part of and connected to the love that God has for us. And that God in, 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 in a real way relates to us erotically. Uh, that might strike you as odd, but we're going to define that. So let's do this. We've been tiptoeing around a little bit. Um, and we just, we're not going to be able to get away from the very erotic nature of these texts, right? I mean, we're talking here about erogenous zones, about trysts, right? About seductive aromas, about body parts, and about body acts, right? This is an erotic text. As a matter of fact, when I was trying to think of, we've been doing this series where we're using images, and I was trying to think of an image, and an image for this section, I was thinking, wow, I don't even know if I want to get into that necessarily. I mean, it's not exactly pornographic, right, what we're reading, 
It's not, it wasn't pornographic, but in some sense, it's definitely intense, right? It's definitely sensual. The entire poem itself is oriented around the notion of touch, right? It's oriented around the notion of contact between people. Even this uh, part that Jim pointed out to us about, you know, don't stir up love or awaken love until it's ready, is read or is said as a calling out for a want or a desire for contact where the two lovers are not in a position where that can happen yet. But it's a desire, a, a yearning, a longing for human, real bodily contact. And it pops up here. The physical nature of love is really, really praised within these passages. But in saying that, I also have to say, but it's not just foreplay or copulation that we're talking about, right? The poem never, ever mentions sex exactly. Now, it's not that sex wouldn't have fit perfect within the poem itself, right? But it doesn't ever really state it. And I think in some sense, the poet is calling for us to understand or to have our notion of what erotic means expanded and enlarged. To have our notion of what it means to be in bodily contact with one another and the human desire for contact with one another greatly stretched. So I think it's pretty safe to say that we live in predominantly an online culture, right? We are a people, we use the internet for a lot of different things. We may use it for work, right? We may use it to communicate with other people. And more and more, I think we're using it actually as a means or a medium for relating to one another. That we are kind of connecting with people and our sense of contact is being driven by an online culture. Now, at the risk of sounding like the old curmudgeon, I'm going to say that I think to some extent that's creating real problems for us. That in some sense we're beginning to lose what it might mean to actually be connected bodily as human beings. That we're starting to lose a sense of what relationships look like, possibly, because we're losing a sense of the physicality of relationships themselves. We're kind of losing, I think, a sense of contact. And in that, not only are we kind of, I think, becoming more alienated from one another, and, and in that alienation, finding ourselves more lonely, but I think we also are finding distorted forms of contact when we have contact itself. That contact itself then plays itself out in a way where we're just looking for instant gratification. Where the contact is not about loving another human being or engaging with another human being as a human being. It's about engaging with an object that can fulfill my desire. Now I realize that those are broad generalizations, but I think in some sense what the poem here is stretching for us and needs to put us uh, in the context as a church in the 21st century and thinking about is what does it mean to be erotic creatures? What does it mean to be creatures who desire actual physical human contact and what that contact looks like? One aspect I think that this poem might actually be pressing on us is a more proper or right glimpse of what human love is. What it means to connect with one another. What it means to actually be erotic. Now, I think this can include sex, 
as we talked about, sex would fit perfectly within the poem, but it's not exclusively about that. I think that's one of the distortions of our culture. So now I want to throw this a little bit back on you, right? What are we to do with the erotic nature of this poem? What are we to do with the kind of physicality of the poem itself? Our physical natures are, were not created bad. No, it's good to be sensual. It's just that with everything from love of God, mother love, everything, we can pervert anything that God has given us. But, but it, we're not just a, a, a good soul trapped in a bad body. Yeah, and think about how contrary this poem is to a lot of, even if you think in biblical images, about a lot of the images, you know, we said earlier this was from a, written primarily by a woman. Think of a lot of the images, distorted images you get of women's sensuality, even in biblical texts, right? There's Delilah who's seducing Samson into committing. This is a very opposite, completely opposite sense here. The sensuality is actually something that's privileged. It's actually praised uh, in a way. So there's, it's a way of recognizing who we are as human beings. Yeah, I think part of what we have to come to terms with in, uh, relating to the erotic content of the text is not only this sort of erotic proximity, which we've been sort of hinting at, being erotically in proximity to another person, but experiencing ourselves as bodily creatures, mm -hmm. which I think is sometimes difficult, um, especially in a culture that tends to sort of weaponize and politicize so much bodily difference. Um, especially with regards to sex, mm -hmm. uh, as we've seen in so many, we, you know, we just had a conversation about sex here, uh, sexuality and politics not long ago. So I think that in addition to thinking about others in an eroticized fashion, we have to be able to think about ourselves that way. Yeah, one of the profound confusions, I think, of our culture is the way in which we, re we relate to our bodies, right? This is a big focus of anxiety in our culture. We really don't know a lot. I mean, I, I was reading a blog post from a professor friend of mine who said a student wrote him and t was talking about his class and was saying that I've learned that my, spiritually I'm supposed to direct my body in certain areas. And I was thinking, you know, he was kind of making a joke about it. Like the way that we have learned about the disconnect between our bodies and our spiritual nature really is, is deeply embedded in who we think we are. And we're very confused about that. Sometimes meaning to thinking we need to stop our bodies and sometimes thinking, well, the body is really an instrument for me to, to you know, be my most inner self in a certain way, right? Uh -huh. so I just want to sort of throw a question out there. Yeah. How do we do this in conjunction with something like the writings of Paul? Um, you know, who sort of is, would strike me as somebody who would be very sort of skeptical of the kind of attraction that we see written about here. That, you know, it's, you know, better to marry than to wander around. We're going to be unmarried like me. We can't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what do we do with that as we, as we read this in conjunction with other books? I think it's a great question. Um, and I think the quick, the quick response that I might throw out, and obviously if you, yeah, let's, we can talk about that a little bit, but is that uh, in some sense Paul is also stretching our notion of what erotic is. 
right? I mean, we'll talk about this at the end, but think about the church as a community. The church is an erotic community. Uh, The sacraments that we partake in, whether they be baptism, Eucharist, uh, they, they are tangible, touching practices. When we pass the peace with one another, we, sh- we hug one another, we care for one another, we touch one another. Those are all, now I know that you think uh, erotic means just kind of like stuff that you should probably not be watching on television, but erotic really just means the form of human loving connectivity, right? Desire, and the desire that we have for human connection and human touch, right? So I think in some sense, uh, we'll come back to this. It's a great question, but how do we read this in relation to Paul, who doesn't really think either sex or marriage is that big of a deal, it doesn't seem like, right? As an African, something that, since it's very difficult to have in the Western world, but something I think the ancients would have shared with Africans is that when you're, you know, when you're close to starvation, then when you get things like rape or food, these things come fairly obviously from God. They're not mediated necessarily by a whole bunch of supermarkets. And so that is, you know, this very material love of God. He has food, right? You know, this is from God. This is God loving us. And so that kind of experience of the material world, like I say, of rain or of nature, of the cross, something that we're, we're pretty distant from. But which I think the ancients and which some cults are still able to experience, like God really loving us as people physically, like by providing. Only certainly the Israelites experience that in the desert and, and other things like that. It's, it's, it's hard for us because you know everything's mediated through so any number of layers and the entire structure of capitalism. So we don't always feel like that's God providing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, we can and should be kind of concerned about. Consumption and our consumerism, but I think for other cultures, it's probably a pretty simple way of feeling. Wow, God, you know, God made this food, provided for us. And 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 you know, to one up it, at the center of our faith is the notion of incarnation, which is that God does not just relate to human beings in a kind of. Uh, some ethereal kind of spiritual relationship that God is not just disconnected from humanity and we have to kind of like throw our souls up that way to connect with God, but that God actually became human. That God actually lived, ate, touched, had his disciples rest their head on his chest, held hands with, connected with human beings. That at the very center of our faith is the notion that God is not afraid of human connection. That in some sense, God wants us and calls us to be people who connect with one another, who have our desires for human connectivity fulfilled by one another. Um, I just want to say it's probably more imaginative um, type thing, but you kind of wonder... What is this doing here in the first place? And how did this actually even get here in the first place? I mean, you certainly see that Israel and the church end up doing a very interesting read-response thing and, and make it into something about God and the, God in Israel or God in the church. But there's no mention of, of God in here. Right. And you, you kind of wonder, how did this start? This, mu- this is the second part. I mean, this must have started out as something really popular, mm-hmm. and something that really struck a chord and resonated with people, and it must have been sang or told again and again, and, mm-hmm. and it's like, what is it that would have resonated with people, and one thing I wonder is if it, if it helped people to see, mm-hmm. 
see their lives in a different way and what was going on in a different way because you figure with a lot of marriages is a property transaction and if you're a, if you're a woman it's some property political transaction and you're just a piece of that and I'm sure that some people in all that did fall in love in terms of the type of affections that we would think of and some people didn't and I'm sure that those that didn't hope for things like this but you just in all of that, even how marriage may have worked then, there were certain things that were still possible. And you just kind of wonder if this ended up showing people, like, in marriages, it helped you see what's actually in front of you and the beauty that's in front of you that may have been voiced upon you by your family or anything else. And maybe it helped them see that. And then Israel and the church take that in a bigger way and think, well, how does this help us to see what we have in each other in relation uh, you know. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think there's a sense that, you know, the, the, the presence of love is being scripturally designated as a location where God is at work, right? And, you know, scandalously, maybe even here, this group of lovers is not married, right? Uh, so we're talking about uh, two people who are connecting, uh, who are connecting and touching one another, and that the presence of love and the bodily presence of that is something that the community is saying, when done well, when done in, in, in this recognition of each one's humanity, that God possibly is at work in that love. And we can say that as people who have known the love of God. I want to introduce an image now to kind of help us think about this a little bit more. Uh, it's an image I found this week. Uh, it's by René Magritte. All right, who, the title of this is The Lovers. He actually has two of these, and this is the second one. Um, it was painted in 1929. Marit is a, French, uh, is a, a Belgian painter, uh, and he painted up through the 20th century, but this one is from uh, the latter half of the 1920s, or the latter part of the 1920s. Um, and I want to take a, he's a surrealist, so maybe that will give you some of you uh, a sense of where that's moving from. Surrealism is a kind of way that people started painting that would throw juxtapositions inside of a painting that would make you kind of think, that's odd, it's not supposed to be there in a certain way, and it would kind of skew the way in which we would normally anticipate a painting going. So let's look at this real quickly, and I want to reflect, I just want to use it as an image here to kind of think about how does this portray human connection, contact? What are some things that you see in it? you can't ever really know the other person yeah there's a real question here about you know it's the lovers but there's a real question about do they actually really know one another do they even know who's on the other side of that veil I mean I think this is a really really uh, you know prominent part of what Magritte's trying to communicate here right and, and think about that in the types of connections that we have uh, do we settle for connections? I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a question of whether we settle for types of connections that really don't know one another, but are the types of connections we feel comfortable with. We kind of went Hebrew on that. You know, that whole language of Peniel, face, was the, was the source of, in their kind of uh, physiology, of emotion, of knowing, of connection. And I, I don't, you know, wouldn't know that the painter was doing that. But to, to, to remove... Uh, uh, to remove the faces from a connection would be a non-connection 
for for at least the Hebrew part of the world. Mm -hmm. And that was the kind of that was the rich idiom of the Old Testament. Often is to you know whether it was you know shame the languages hide one's face and love is to show one's face and you know that so there's a right. something powerful with that. Yeah, Amy. Can you speak up a little bit? Sure. Do you wonder if they put these cloaks or these scarves on themselves or if they put on them? Uh -huh. um, so I was just thinking in other parts of the book of Song of Songs, we read about their different color, the lovers of colored skin. Mm -hmm. So it brings up ideas of who, what type of people are supposed to be together. Mm -hmm. And is, there, is this some sort of cloaking of Color, gender, like more, yeah. yeah, it just blurs the edges of, of acceptance. And... Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's really interesting because I mean, it looks like the, the at least the the person on the left dressed as a female. We don't know who that is, but uh, is is probably Caucasian, right? But we have no idea about the male. And think about how charged that would have been in the twenties, even even in you know even in Europe in the twenties in, in a lot of places. There's a covering of white. Yeah. It was this whole white of love. Right. People's shoulders and bodies are turned to each other, sort of in the posture, as if they're simulating or wanting to think about have, having a relationship, even though they can't see each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's something really about. I mean, they look like they're embraced in a kiss, right? They're exchanging a kiss with one another, which is what lovers do, right? But they're also veiled from one another in that sense. And, and I wonder if like the sense of, of a kiss is this kind of yearning for some type of connection that's beyond it, right? Beyond what they currently have with one another. But also in that, you know, a kiss can be exchanged between lovers, but it can be exchanged between you and your grandmother. It can be exchanged between you and a friend when you meet one another. That there are all types of human contact that are erotic but are not always sexually charged in a certain sense. And so I think what's interesting to, in some ways is maybe the desire for human contact and the desire, you know, we just passed the peace. And when Peter in the early church asked people to pass the peace, he said to exchange the kiss of peace. Um, that notion of connecting with one another and being connected in a ways that uh, our desire for human contact is met. I, I think that's just, there's something to that. I don't, I don't want to define it too much because... It probably doesn't not even write, but um, I, I I feel like because they're clothes that they are in modern clothing that they're kind of confined to a certain context and time because it's mm -hmm. so oftentimes when there's paintings in any moment in culture that they make it kind of timeless that that's mm -hmm. what a lot of the nude is about is timelessness but the fact that they're clothed as they as they are it may be a similar commentary as what you were saying about the digital connection mm -hmm. that there is some something that they're familiar with, that there's a part of their culture that's keeping them from truly connecting. Hmm. And I don't really you know their culture well enough to say what that is, but it could, could be similar to what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, like, the formality. I mean, he's obviously got a suit and tie on, so, you know, we look like a privileged, we look like a prejudiced group in that regard. There's nobody here in a suit and tie. So maybe it's the formality of the culture that kind of is keeping them uh, divided from one another. I don't know. I, I think this is something maybe you can take home and continue to think about. And I think as an image of the Song of Songs, uh, it may continue to resonate with how do we connect and what does it mean to be erotic individuals or erotic people and how do we share that with one another.
Now, some years ago, uh, uh, a scholar developed a study on notions of love in the, US, in the New Testament. And the, the scholar's name is Anders Nygren. You don't really need to know that. It's not important. But a lot of you have been influenced by his ideas. You might not realize that, but for generations, at least three generations, this has been preached regularly from the pulpit. That really in the ancient world, there were two primary types of love. Right? There was eros, which is where we get our term erotic, and it's desire, it's this notion of human connectivity, it's sexual. And then there is agape, which is the New Testament form of love, which is the self-sacrificing, the giving of oneself, the altruism that we see in God's gift. And I think what we find here in the Song of Songs is that Nigren is completely wrong. Those two types of loves are not disconnected from one another, but they are intimately bound to one another. That to embrace the love of God is also to embrace an erotic life, a life that seeks out human connectivity, that finds human connectivity, that finds it in sharing close relationships with one another and actually shares it in bodily contact. Self-giving love, or that what he called agape, is not opposed to desire, just like the soul is not opposite of the body. They go together. You can't have one without the other. That we as whole human beings both have desires for contact. And we also then, through that, are invited into the types of self-giving that we find in Christ where we give ourselves to one another completely. We find that God is not a hard taskmaster, but God is actually a great lover. In the ancient world, it was very common for around funeral rites, times of funeral and burial, for also in a lot of cultures to practice orgies, to celebrate the cult of fertility. There was a sense in doing that, that life and love might overpower the grave. In our text tonight, if we look at the passage from 8, 6 through 7, right? Look quickly at that passage. This is exactly what our writer is setting before us. The question of, is love pow more powerful than the grave? Is it more powerful than chaos? Is it more powerful than death? Is it more powerful than fire, than these things that would have ravished the ancient world. And I think reading it now as New Testament people, we can find here that actually in God's gift of Christ, not only are we people who have to think about that, who think or dream about might that be possible, but we are actually a people who know that because God has given God's self in Christ in the incarnation, that we actually know love is more powerful than the grave. That in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus, love has decisively been claimed more powerful than the grave. And we are those who have seen it and have touched it. We are those who are partake at its table. And as people called into that faith, I think where we'll end tonight and what Song of Songs teaches us maybe is that an online faith is just not full enough. That in, there's something about connecting with one another. 
There's something about touching one another. There's something about being in contact with one another. As I said earlier, if you think about our sacraments, baptism in the early church was a very erotic practice. People were stripped completely naked and dunked in the water. Not because everybody was so sexually charged, but because the recognition there was that life is being triumphed over the grave. And that this is an embodied activity. That when God enters into our world and into our lives, it's not something God just does at a spiritual level that maybe if we think hard enough or dream hard enough, we can possibly connect to. But that God actually enters our life on the level of touch, on contact. When we celebrate the table, we interact with one another, connecting with one another. Pouring wine or juice, eating, drinking, as a tangible practice of the love of God in our world. Really here, where agape and eros are not separated from one another. Where our deep desires to connect with other human beings are actually present along with our self-giving love, where we exchange ourselves with one another and sacrifice for one another. Along with our image, if we think of sharing the kiss of peace, that we are a people who practice the presence of peace in a tangible way. Not just in some idea about what peace might look like, as if we were writing out a kind of, hey, if I were in charge of the world, this is what I would do. But we actually are a people who get to practice peace tangibly. And that as we do that, we are the body of Christ in the world. We are the contact of God with the world. That we connect with one another and that we connect with our world in ways that are very tangible. That meet the deep desires of the world. That don't leave any part of who we are as humans unconnected with but actually invite us as people into the full erotic love of God. In some sense, I think where we end tonight is with the notion of are we erotic enough? Are we erotic enough? The end, or I guess the, the last part of this passage in 8 where it starts off with wanting to be a seal of the lover. And the seal in the ancient world was basically one's identity. There was no kind of like handwriting that defined a person. There were no signatures. And a seal would have been someone's very identity. And the lover asking to be joined as the seal, there's a joining of the whole identity of one person with another here. That's the very claim we make when we say the church is the body of Christ. That we as a body have taken on and are joined in the very identity of God incarnate in the world. And as we practice our faith, as we live it out, it means just doing it online, just doing it through podcast is not going to be enough. We actually have to show up physically for one another. We actually have to show up in our world that we actually have to connect with our world, that where people are longing to feel the love of God, that just saying God loves you might not be enough. We might actually have to share hugs. We might have to share kisses. 
we might actually have to come in contact with the world in deep need and with one another where the love of God is proclaimed. We're going to head to Eucharist here in just a minute, but before we do that, Wade is going to play a song of confession and a song of absolution. And in that, I think he's going to take us once again through these moments of the erotic and the self-giving and the way in which God relates to us as whole creatures so that we can be whole creatures for our world. Thank you, Dan. We uh, see in our confession this uh, Leonard Cohen song that he wrote some 50 verses for. We're not going to do anywhere near that many, but um, you probably know this song. Um, and it's interesting because I think he certainly talks about the divine part of love, and yet I think it's also summed up for our confession where he says, Now maybe there's a God above, but all I ever learned from love is how to shoot at somebody who outdrew you. And it's not a cry that you hear at night. It's not someone who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. We need help for love. And uh, I think that we get that here in this uh, confession. So sing along. There was a secret chord David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall The major lift Baffle king composing Hallelujah Hallelujah Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew. Tied you to a kitchen chair She broke your throne She cut your hair From your lips She drew the hallelujah 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 This floor used to live alone before I knew you. Seen your flag on the marble arch, and love is not a victory march, it's a call and it's a broken hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. There was a time you let me know 
what's really going on below, but now you never show it to me, do ya? Remember when it moved in you and the holy dove was moving too, and every breath we drew was hallelujah, 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 God above, but all I ever learned from love is how to shoot at somebody who had drew ya. It's not a cry you hear at night. It's not somebody you've seen the light. It's a cold. It's a broken hallelujah. Soul is a song uh, that we've done uh, before, and uh, we did a recording. Um, uh, some of us, Tim Holly and I, are working on this along with some other songs for the new um, Right Seven project. And so, um, thought we'd just Pete. Uh, we've only played it one time at Easter. Thought we'd play it again and, and give some time and our absolution for contemplation. Um, so let me pull this up, and I'll tell you a couple more things. Um, my sister was talking to me about some research she'd done about the Dark Night of the Soul, and St. John of the Cross was a monk who was writing um, in the Middle Ages, and he had been looking at the Song of Solomon and thought that as a monk who had professed celibacy that he really got into the idea that his relationship with God had an erotic tone to it, and so he would write erotic love poetry to God based on the Song of Solomon. And when it was found, he was often punished. And after one particular night, he was put out in the stocks naked and left overnight. And um, when he came back in the morning, he actually wrote the the lyrics. Um, And this is a translation, but that's where the song is coming from. Um, And so, again, you've got your lyrics in front of you, and this is the dark night of the song. 
darkened night The flame of love was burning in my breast I a lantern bright I fled my house while all in quiet rest Shrouded by the night By the secret stair I quickly fled The veil concealed my eyes While all within lay quiet as the dead Night thou was my guide Oh night more loving than the rising sun Transforming each of them into the other On that misty night In secrecy beyond such mortal sight Without a guide or light In that which burns so deep
the beloved one, transforming each of them into the to him and laid my face on my lover's breast and care and grief grew dim as in the morning's mist became the light and there they dimmed amongst the lilies They dimmed amongst the lilies there. There they dimmed amongst the lilies Uh, you didn't know what Rite 7 was. I think most of you know, but it's a collection of, of liturgical um, music that our musicians have been making. There's been multiple collections. That song is actually really prominent on my uh, various technological devices because one of the things that, um, that I find in that song is often my prayer is that what Dan was talking about tonight, that vastly erotic connection with God as lover of me is the most difficult aspect of faith for me. And so uh, often, and maybe you, have, maybe you have did that during confession tonight, you may have prayed that song as, may I know God in that way, and I, I recommend that to you in a variety of ways. Um, Dan, a comment before we go to the table. I know this was a hard sermon for you to, to do tonight, not because of the erotic nature, but I had an opportunity uh, this, uh, this June to take a, an amazing class that Dan uh, taught out in Seattle on theological anthropology. Apology. What, what do we make sense of our bodies and who we are as bodies, persons? And I would imagine it's a really hard sermon for you guys to hear because we've been nurtured in thousands of years of this mindset that images of body are, are the things that we need to push ourselves at great distance with. Uh, our bodies are what keeps us from being able to know God. It's, we read this erotic poem about God yearning for us in dramatic ways and human beings yearning for each other and we go, what in the world is that? 
two quick texts to remind you of. One that you don't know. Uh, Dan, one of the things that you had assigned in that class that I've thought a lot, whole lot about was uh, by a womanist scholar who was saying, you can't know violation unless you think about bodies. And she's a, a, a black scholar who was recalling uh, the journey of particularly women's bodies during, uh, during slavery and saying, you can't even put your arms around the nature of the brokenness of humanity without uh, bringing the notion of bodies to bear. And then the flip side of that is you can't understand freedom without enfleshing that in a certain way. And if you remember last week when we talked about Ezekiel 37, we made a very similar point, that, that beautiful poem about bones dancing is the idea that we can't understand restoration. We cannot understand reconciliation. We cannot understand redemption unless it's physical, unless the resurrection that God promised is, is not some bizarre abstraction, but it's something that touches the core of our beings, including our bodies. This is a matter of great thought and great prayer and, and great conversation for us. I'm excited that those conversations are, are happening. Uh, Dan very well tonight introduced us to the table, a really, really physical act. I know when I hit seminary as a Baptist kid who took communion once a quarter because you had to and had no idea what was going on. I had this great uh, Anglican professor who used to say, the most intimate thing you do with someone besides having sex is eating with them. And that idea of eating being something intimate was another crazy idea for me. But it's something that we do every week. And our eating and our drinking, it's a reminder that the redemption, the death of Jesus was a bodily death. The resurrection of Jesus was a bodily resurrection. And we are living in that resurrection life, not as an abstraction that sounds like a great idea for us, but as physical people who are enjoying the resurrection and anticipating the resurrection to the very core of our being, including our bodies. So I invite you now to the table after we sing our benediction to eat and drink, to pour bread and wine and, and, and juice for each other and to say the words that we always say to each other. This is the body that was broken for you. This is the blood that was shed for you. And to do that uh, uh, very physically with each other in the anticipation of the fullness of the redemption that Christ offers. And tonight, Wade, I thought we would sing the benediction now. And if you would uh, pardon this for me, I thought we should sing this physically tonight in a certain way. So I'm going to encourage you to stand up and to touch each other, perhaps holding hands around the room so that they would be reminded of the, kind of the full breadth of what God has done. So sing this walking song of hope uh, as we touch each other. traveler to faraway lands got love on my mind death on these hands so come homeward angel show me the way oh fate leave me dead in the tracks where I lay show me the river leads to my home
know I have changed See the blood that was shed The lines on my face Now that I've turned I'm back on the fight Gonna steal back my life Like a thief in the night So show me the river tonight and to join us at the table this evening. You're all invited to meet us at the table. Mm-hmm. 